You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Matt. I uh, serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, it's good to be, to be back uh, with you and to, to open up God's Word this morning. My wife and I got to sneak away for uh, about a week. There was a, a three-day-long um, pastors and wives retreat for the Acts 29 Network, a group of churches that we're part of. And then we tacked on three extra days to celebrate our 15th anniversary. So we got to do that together, too. And um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> It's all for Shay. She has to put up with this year round. So now the applause will go to her. But if you have Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus 11 and 12 uh, this morning, page 53 uh, and, and on from there. And as we're continuing our series focused on Moses and going through the book of Exodus this morning, uh, we have reached what could well be considered the very heart of the Old Testament. Exodus chapters 11 through 15 describe three key events. They describe the Passover the Exodus itself, when the people of God actually left their slavery in Egypt, and then they describe the deliverance of God's people through the Red Sea. And between this morning and and next week, we're going to look at these monumental acts of God and what they teach us or how they teach us more of what it means when we say that God is the Savior of his people. We'll often kind of shorthand say, God is Savior, God has saved his people, God saves his people. These events actually give a lot of substance to what we mean when we say things like that. Because for for the next millennium and then some, if you were going to ask the Israelites about the God that they worshipped, about who he is, about what he had done, they would have told you a story. And they would have told you this story. They would have said, he is the one who passed over us. In judgment. He is the one who brought us out of our slavery. He's the one who brought us through the sea on dry ground. And this is the same story that we, as the people of God in this time and place, get to continue telling today. But we get to reflect not only on on these events, but on how, as Rachel led us this morning in liturgy, how they pointed forward to an even greater salvation. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into Exodus 11. Almighty and gracious Father, The true understanding of your word helps us to grow into the fullness of salvation that you so freely have offered us in Jesus. And so we ask now that you would uh, help our hearts to hear and to grasp your word with all diligence and faith, that you would help us to understand your will as you have revealed it to us, that we would cherish it, that we would live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. And we pray that through Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. 
But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he, that is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skip down to chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people in Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had, had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. 
And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, left, they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is God's word. These are real events in history. Being this far removed from them, we have to remember that the Passover is not just a theological or metaphorical account. These are real people experiencing real things like enslavement and the judgment of these plagues and and then liberation. But in observing and, and seeking to understand the Passover, we also learn a ton about God's redemptive work far beyond what happened in Egypt in the days of Moses. The Passover especially teaches us about distinction and death. Distinction, how, how God makes distinction, how God differentiates between people, and death, that in God's plan of redemption, life and salvation always come through the death of another. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about those two things, distinction and, and death. First, let's talk about distinction. What makes someone or a group of people distinct? How do we differentiate or distinguish between people? Well, we can make distinctions by nationality or ethnicity. Uh, We can make distinctions by stage or station in life. If you're young or old, if you're married or unmarried, if you have kids or no kids, if you're a young professional, if you're an empty nester. We can make distinctions by relative wealth or poverty, by vocation Uh, by our sports team affiliation, by religion, or even subsets or particular convictions within a religion. There's there's Sunni Muslims and there's Shiite Muslims. There's Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and Protestant Christians. On and on we could could go. And we live in in a cultural moment where making distinctions has intensified drastically. On the left, for example, critical theory, intersectionality, essentially reduce everything to who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed, who is privileged in this interaction and who's marginalized. That's the distinction that that seems to have been elevated by by many people and the distinction that matters most in their minds. But on the right, the right does distinctions too. 
uh, quick, at times simplistic judgments about why poor people are poor, why rich people are rich. Hyper-nationalism, categorically writing off some nations or some groups of people as hopeless, never having a chance, blindly embracing others. Here's what I hope you see this morning, that God's grid for making distinction is radically different than ours. God's grid for making distinctions is radically different than yours and mine would otherwise be. And we see this throughout scripture, but we see it in particular in the Passover. God here reveals some fascinating things about how he makes distinctions. So first, Egypt is judged without distinction. Chapter 11, verses four and six. In this 10th and final plague, in the death of the firstborn, notice that it is every firstborn in Egypt that dies. From the, from the top of the socioeconomic and power structure, from Pharaoh himself, to the bottom, to the slave that is in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of the, the livestock, the cattle. Doesn't matter where you rank. If you're an Egyptian, you're going to experience this judgment. You're going to experience the death of your firstborn. But then, very next verse, verse 7, God does make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And this is something that God actually began doing earlier in the plagues. From the fourth plague onward, he started to make a distinction. And it's true for this this final plague as well. So the firstborn of every Egyptian is going to die, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. And why? Very next line. So that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. This distinction goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham from among all the people of the earth to bless and to make into a great nation. Uh, He set Abraham and his family apart in order to bless all the nations of the earth through them. And so Abraham's line, which becomes Israel, is God's firstborn son. There's, There's a distinct kind of favor and care that God puts upon this group of people. So when we get to the book of Exodus, and about 350 years earlier than the events we're reading about today, when a former pharaoh first subjected Israel to slavery, he was enslaving God's firstborn son. And this is why back in Exodus 4, when Moses and Aaron first go to confront this new pharaoh, this current pharaoh, God says through them, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me if you refuse I will kill your firstborn son. All this to say, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He made this distinction between Abraham and all the other people alive on the face of the earth at that point. He made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And he says there in Exodus 4, if you you mess with and oppress the one on whom God has put his blessing, it's going to go really poorly for you. But God has made this distinction between Israel and Egypt in the judgment of this final plague. He is simply carrying forward that same distinction. So no distinction among the types of people in Egypt, the classes in Egypt, all their firstborn will die. Yes, distinction between Egypt and Israel. But here's the thing that you and I can't miss about the Passover. The Israelites' deliverance is not automatic. It's not automatic. It comes by the means of a substitutionary death and by their own faith and obedience. We're going to talk more about the the substitutionary death part of that in the second point. But, But if the Israelites did not listen to these instructions from God that he gave through Moses, 
If the Israelites did not kill a lamb and then paint some of its blood on the doorpost, if they did not stay inside their homes that night, their firstborn sons would have died too. They would have experienced God's judgment too. And it wouldn't have mattered that they were Israelites. It wouldn't have mattered that that God called Israel his firstborn son. The Israelites are spared because upon receiving these instructions, chapter 12, verse 27 and 28, they first bow their heads in worship and then they go and do it. They hear, they believe, and then they obey. Some people like to reduce the Exodus to simply a story of political liberation. Liberation for oppressed people, judgment against the oppressor. And that is certainly part of what plays out in the book of Exodus. That is certainly part of this story. But the Israelites' deliverance is not just a matter of their ethnic identity. It's not just a matter of their oppressed status. If that were the case, I would invite you to consider this morning, what's the point of the Passover? What's the need for the Passover? It's not like God was unable to tell who's an Egyptian and who's an Israelite. Okay? The, the blood on the doorpost, it's not for God's benefit. It's for Israel's benefit. It's not to help God differentiate as if he couldn't do that some other way. It's to teach Israel and therefore to teach God's people in every generation how God makes distinctions. See, ultimately in God's grid, the world is not divided between ethnic groups and tribes. The world is not divided between righteous nations and unrighteous nations or oppressors and oppressed. The world is not made up in God's grid of good people and bad people. In the end, the only distinction that ultimately matters is how you and I respond to the offer of a substitutionary sacrifice. Will we reject and ignore it? Will we harden our hearts to it? Or will we believe and obey? And littered throughout the the account of the Passover are these incredible glimpses of the great salvation that God is one day going to bring through his own firstborn son, through Jesus. Like the mixed multitude in chapter 12, verse 38. Did you know that when the Israelites left Egypt, it wasn't just the Israelites? I miss that point of this, I miss that aspect of this story all the time when I think about the Exodus. There are people from other nations that go with them. Almost certainly that meant some of the Egyptians went out with them too. Or at the end of chapter 12, in in giving instructions for celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in years to come, Moses says, hey, don't indiscriminately let people from other nations celebrate this. People who are foreigners, people who are from other nations should not eat it. But if they sojourn with you, if they're willing to be circumcised, in other words, if they're willing to become part of the covenant people of God and be identified with God's people, then welcome them, include them. At that point, there's no longer a distinction. At that point, verse 49, there's one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns. And so centuries later, Jesus Christ enters into the world and he offers himself as the sacrificial substitute on the cross. He breaks down the dividing walls of hostility, the the things that we use to differentiate and distinguish between people and groups of people. And when he does that, the apostles and the early church look back on these events from Exodus and say, that's exactly what God started doing all the way back at the Passover. It's exactly what God has been doing for centuries. See, in Jesus, there are no other distinctions We got to hear that in the scripture reading this morning in Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're we're like the Egyptians that get judged regardless of our status in society. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift. 
Or Romans 10, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Or Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, but that mercy is received when people from every tongue and tribe and nation and people from every socioeconomic status or stage or station in life, when they respond to the offer of a substitutionary sacrifice with faith and with obedience. Even circumcision, that that physical distinction that's talked about in this text that was used throughout the old covenant to differentiate God's people from everybody else In Jesus, even that distinction goes away. Paul writes in Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself out in love. One of our rhythms of grace here at Liberty Church is mission. It's mission. We we pursue both showing and telling the good news about Jesus. I would submit to you this morning, one of the best ways to hinder mission, one of the best ways to throw a wrench in the gears of our pursuit of doing that is to use different distinctions than God uses. To use different distinctions than God, to draw distinctions where he does not draw them or to not keep God's actual distinction in place. See, in our pursuit of mission, we can be wrongly exclusive. We can also be wrongly inclusive. If you find yourself inclined to exclude individuals or groups of people on the basis of ethnicity or nationality or socioeconomic status or political party affiliation, then you are drawing distinctions where God does not draw them. You are proverbially slamming the door of the kingdom of God in people's faces who need to be invited and welcomed in. If, on the other hand, you and I fail to to uphold the necessary distinction which is how someone responds to Jesus, if they will respond to Jesus with faith and obedience. If we fail to uphold that distinction, we likewise shut the door of God's kingdom in people's faces. See, the the Israelites were enslaved and oppressed and marginalized people, but they did not get a free pass because of any of those things. If they failed to believe, if they failed to obey, they would have been judged in this plague too. They would have lost their firstborn too. And so it's important for us to say, particularly in this cultural moment, that oppressed and marginalized people, though we have compassion for them, they don't get a free pass. Like everyone else, like us, they are rescued from God's judgment because they respond to the offer of a sacrificial substitute with faith and obedience. So always pursue mission using God's grid for distinction and not your own. Blow up the unnecessary distinction. Keep the necessary one in place. Second, let's talk about, let's talk about death because that's everybody's favorite subject to just dive into on a Sunday morning. Uh, in God's redemptive work, the Passover is not just shaping our understanding of distinction, but of death. And specifically, it's teaching us that life and salvation always come through death. Or even more specifically, that our freedom from slavery must be purchased by the death of a lamb without blemish. That's what the Passover sets the paradigm for throughout God's redemptive work in history. So the Israelites here, as we read, they are spared the death of their firstborn. But notice, there is still a death in each of their homes too. There's still a death in each Israelite home too. A lamb dies and its blood is poured out 
and is then painted onto the doorposts and the lintel of each home. And it's this blood that causes God to pass over them. Chapter 12, verse 13, God says, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the life, uh, the rescue, the salvation, the freedom of Israel comes only because another died in their place. It comes only through the death of another. You can think about it this way. If this were just about an ethnic distinction, Israel versus Egypt, or if this were just a power distinction, oppressor and oppressed, they could have used some other kind of symbol. Red paint would have sufficed to put on their doorposts. Or even if this were only about faith and obedience, responding to God's instructions, red paint could have sufficed. God could have said, hey, take some red paint, some other kind of differentiating marker, put that on your doors. The Israelites could have heard that. They could have responded with faith and obedience. But it's not red paint in Exodus 11 and 12. It's blood. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, your life, my life, comes through the death of another. Don't forget that the Israelites are sinners too. And if that's not already clear at this point in the book of Exodus, it will be really soon. It will be really soon. After being delivered, they groan and complain against God and Moses constantly. And in a scary short amount of time, after they walk through the sea on dry ground, they take all this jewelry that they've taken from the Egyptians when they left and they melt it down. They make a small cow out of it and they say, here's our God. Here's the God that brought us out of Egypt. Tony Marita puts it this way. He says, God would make a distinction with Israel, but this was not to say that Israel was innocent. They were found innocent because of the applied blood of the substitute. God judged Egypt, but he also judged Israel. The Passover demonstrated that apart from the blood of the lamb, Israel would have been found guilty. So the Passover sets for us the paradigm of what's known as substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. That is, our sin against the holy God deserves his judgment, deserves our death, which means that, that you and I all have a desperate need for atonement, for our sin to be taken away, for our sin to, to not be counted against us. And sin against the holy God, we find throughout scripture, can only be atoned for by the shedding of blood can only be atoned for by the death of another. Years later, the author of Hebrews succinctly and clearly puts it this way. He says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so what begins here at Passover, and very soon after leads to the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament law, teaches us that we will either pay for sin ourselves, or a substitute will pay for us. We will either die for our own sin in judgment of our own sin, or we will be saved by the death of a substitute. And herein lies, friends, the beauty and the worth of Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the Passover lamb. What the blood of animals sacrificed day after day or year after year could only point to is once and for all fulfilled by the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus himself. The Passover is why one of the names of Jesus that we see throughout the New Testament, we even sang this name of Jesus together this morning in one of our songs, is the Lamb. 
or the Lamb of God. It's like John the Baptist puts it in the Gospel of John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God. Who what? Who takes away the sin of the world. Or like the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed. In other words, the the price of your freedom was paid, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Or like the Apostle John will go on to write in the book of Revelation, he gets this vision of worship around God's throne and he hears this refrain, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Men and women, Jesus' death is your life. It's your life, your freedom from slavery. Not slavery to Egypt, but slavery to sin. Your freedom is purchased by the death of a spotless lamb. That is Jesus Christ. Some of you, I'm sure, are feeling this in this moment. Many of you have probably wrestled with this, are wrestling with this. We all know people for whom this is true. Substitutionary atonement grates against our modern sensibilities. It it grates against a 21st century Western modern sensibility. It sounds barbaric. It sounds outdated. And it's not rational automatically to us that, that life would require death. Like, why does it have to be that way? Why does atonement require the shedding of blood? And so a lot of Christians have attempted to steer as far clear as possible of substitutionary atonement. Just don't talk about it. And a lot of non-Christians point to this as maybe one of the primary reasons that they just can't ever see themselves becoming a Christian. Now to be sure, Scripture gives us other really important lenses on the atonement. Uh, Jesus Christ is also our victor. Uh, He is the one who conquers sin and conquers death. Jesus is also our moral example In his death, he he shows us what love is. He shows us what real love and sacrificial love looks like. So please don't hear me this morning doing away with any of that. What I want you to hear me say this morning is that a correct understanding of our salvation has to include substitutionary atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And And if it sounds odd to us, think how odd it would have sounded to the Israelites in this moment. Like there wasn't a rational thing for them in that moment that said, yeah, kill the lamb, paint the blood on your doorpost. That's how you experience salvation. It would be as odd to them as sometimes it sounds to us. But if there were another way, God would have provided that way instead. If red paint would have sufficed, God would have told Israel to just paint their doorpost red. Likewise, if God could just forgive sin without justice, without judgment, Or if you and I could experience his salvation by just following the example of Jesus, by being a good, uh, respectable, moral person. If God made his distinctions by taking our good deeds and our bad deeds and putting them in a scale and just the good outweighing the bad, if any of that were true, then we could do away with substitutionary atonement. But what we see this morning and throughout scripture is that apart from the death of Jesus counting on our behalf, all of those other things are just red paint. They're all just red paint. Apart from the death of Jesus, you and I are still in our sin. We're destined for judgment. We're destined to pay the penalty of our sin ourselves. This morning, I I wanted you to ask yourself, I want you to wrestle with this question deeply. Do I trust the death of Jesus for my salvation? Or am I just painting my doorpost with red paint? Do I trust the death of Jesus for my salvation? 
Or am I just painting my doorposts with red paint? A, a tragic number of people who call themselves Christians are really underneath the surface only using red paint. And if that's you, I, I implore you this morning, stop trusting your good deeds. Stop trusting your morality. Stop trusting your church attendance or your financial giving or whatever it might be and trust the death of Jesus. If that's your family member or your friend, because we all have people for, this is, for whom this is true, implore them, stop trusting your respectability. Stop trusting your decency and trust the death of Jesus. Look to Jesus as the only sacrificial substitute who can atone for, who can take away our sin. Now, as we read, the Israelites here were commanded to commemorate and celebrate the Passover every year. It is how they remembered, it's how they reenacted their redemption. And it's how they would tell future generations and give future generations a chance to participate in God's great act of salvation. Well, in just a moment, when we receive the Lord's Supper, when we come to this table, we get to do the very same thing. This meal, the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, is the fulfillment of what the Passover pointed to. It's not a coincidence that, that Jesus instituted this meal in that upper room with his disciples while they were preparing to celebrate the Passover. And just like that first Passover in Exodus would have been an odd command for the Israelites, in the, Lord, the Lord's Supper is an odd practice, right? When you step back and think about it, this is an odd meal. Jesus says, this bread is my body given for you. This cup is my blood poured out for your forgiveness. But just like the Passover, this table is a remembrance and a reenactment of our salvation. If life only comes through the death of another, if atonement can only come through a substitute, if the shedding of, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, what we get to celebrate at this table is that here is the death of Jesus for your life. Here is his body substituted in your place. Here is his blood shed for the remission of your sin. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, because that he is, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore keep the feast. Men and women, this is the feast of your freedom. Uh, this is the feast of your salvation. We were once slaves to sin, but God has brought us out. We were once deserving of God's judgment, but Jesus is the lamb who died in our place. And so this morning now with, I pray, deeper awe and appreciation, let us keep the feast. Amen. Amen, let me pray for us. We praise you, our God and Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus. We praise you for the fulfillment of what the Passover pointed forward to, that at this table, at this table, we're not eating a lamb this morning, but the lamb is Christ who has been sacrificed once for all. And we get to come and feast on his finished work. We get to come and feast in celebration of the freedom that has been bought by the costly offering of Jesus, his body and blood on our behalf. Jesus, we rejoice in the great salvation you've accomplished. And we pray you'd renew us in the grace of your gospel as we come this morning, that by your spirit, you would strengthen us to believe and to obey, to be your people in this world, blessed by you so that we might be a blessing to others. Prepare us in our hearts now as we come. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.